0: What's a faithful way of living in a culture where Christian faith is not the majority view? Are there any similarities between the early church and today's church that make the issues they worked out of relevance to us? Can a world without Facebook, the internet, or Strictly, have anything to say to us today? And what has a man called Justin got to contribute? Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmer Hall, Durham, where we explore life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Libby, and in this episode, I'll be talking to Nick Moore, the director of our MA program here at Cranmer Hall. Our question is, what's the early church ever done for us? Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy the show. Nick, welcome to Talking Theology. It's good to be here. Nick, tell us a little bit about your role and uh, how you got to where you are today. Yes,
1: so I'm the MA Director here at Cranmer Hall. We have two MA programmes in Theology and Ministry and in Digital Theology. I've been here just under two years now. Um, yes, who am I? I, I? I'm a husband and father. I'm an ordained minister. I have spent time in ministry in uh, Hartlepool in the northeast, um, also in... Buckinghamshire I' spent time abroad as well uh,
0: I've done research, uh, so a whole range of things brought me to where I am today. Today 's topic is the early church, and what 's the early church ever? done for us how did a man like you ever get interested in the early church <laughs> it's
1: a good question um i uh, was interested in history as a child i remember watching or reading the horrible history books i don't know if you know those uh, i'm now enjoying reliving that with my uh, oldest son who's watching horrible histories the tv series so we're enjoying that I hadn't really done any early church history uh, until I started studying theology uh, formally but in my first year as a theology student uh, I remember doing a a paper a module in patristics and I was hooked just fascinated by it so uh, from there on uh, I've tried to incorporate it into my research although I'm a biblical scholar do a lot in the early church as well.
0: I guess the first question we want to ask though is kind of why bother with the early church at all it strikes me that as a period it can be quite confusing it can feel very distant and rather unrelated perhaps to the questions we're we're facing today so I guess I want to say you know what's special about church history at all even begin to start mm-hmm. looking at the early mm-hmm. church?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question. And I think there are a couple of things we could say. Um, one thing to consider is that we haven't come from nowhere. We are embedded in a culture which is in part a product of what has gone before. Um, Uh, and in terms of the Christian church we're not only products of what's come before it's helpful to know where we've come from but we're also heirs of what's gone before people have handed down the faith from generation to generation so it's really helpful to have a look at uh, what's happened just to know why we are where we are today. I think another reason that we could uh, consider why um, church history is is worth paying attention to is that we all have um, blind spots there are things that we don't Uh, see and those around us don't see because we're in the same situation and there are two ways you might address that one is through contact with the worldwide church just earlier this week in college we had a a visit from a group of uh, Kenyan Christians and how enriching that was and they see things in a different way from us another way we might do that is to go back into church history and see different perspectives
0: from Christians throughout uh, that 2000 year period So if there's value in looking at church history, because it kind of helps us see today's church in a different light, what's valuable about looking at the early church? And we're talking about the first two or three centuries, I guess, in particular. What's valuable about looking at that portion of church history?
1: So at one level it's the same as any church history so the the two things I've, I've just said would be valid but I think when we come to the early church and certainly those first two or three centuries perhaps even up uh, up to about the, the mid-fifth century the so mm-hmm. first four centuries after Christ um, there are a number of things that are special about that period okay so for example uh, you're closer to the new testament and to the world of jesus uh, geographically culturally Mm -hmm. linguistically as well as in time Uh, and so there might be uh, ways that those readers of the new testament documents or or of the time of jesus are just more in the zone than we are Uh, it may be with that proximity in time that there's actually living memory so uh, it's only you know two or three steps removed that some memory of what happened in the first century has been passed down. So there's a particular window there. That's, that's one thing. Another thing uh, that's uh, important about this early church period is that it's foundational for almost all Christians. So uh, Protestant... Roman Catholic, Orthodox, all will look back to those first ecumenical councils and the creeds they produced, the doctrines that they were articulating and defining and defending, uh, the way that the canon of scripture came to be defined. So the church was very clear that the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures were in, and then also very clear about certain other texts that were out in terms of the texts that had been generated after the time of Jesus. So that's a couple of reasons. I think there's a particular reason as well uh, as to why the early church is a valuable period to look at that relates to our current context. Uh, And that is that we are and we have been for a number of years or decades uh, very clearly in a post-Christendom context.
0: Tell us what that means. So we are
1: um, in a period where Christianity uh, is no longer aligned with power and the establishment in the way that it has been for something like 1500 years, uh, certainly in the Western world. Okay so that has been for most of the history of Christianity uh, that has been the case and we are increasingly recognising ways in which uh, certainly in the UK but across the Western world
0: Christianity is no longer in that privileged uh, position that it has long held. And, and we'd see that by presumably the proportion of people who might describe themselves as Christian or who might kind of have an affiliation with a Christian church in some sort of way.
1: Yeah that's right and uh, Christian churches are often not uh, any longer aligned with um, government, may not have established uh, positions. uh, Church of England happens to in this country but in a lot of places there's that separation between the state and the church. Um, Also uh, an increasing um, multi-faith culture with many different religions. And so how does that coincide with the early church well what you have if you look at the first two and a half three centuries of the church's existence uh, is in one sense a very similar situation it's pre-christendom so none of that has happened yet that begins to happen after the conversion of constantine and uh, then a little later christianity becomes the official religion of the roman empire so um in those early centuries, Christians are on the margins, uh, but they're not feeling necessarily in battle. They're actually very um, positive and outward-looking. They set up hospitals, they adopt children and set up orphanages, and Christianity grows at a phenomenal rate, even before there's the kind of uh, power interest that means people might want to come under the wings of the church because
0: it becomes beneficial for them. So lots that we could learn there. So you're saying there's actually more in common with the early church than we might think. They they Mm -hmm. may not have had YouTube and the technology we have, but nevertheless, the cultural situation they were facing is not so totally different from our own. Not that different absolutely and I think what's exciting
1: about looking at the early church is that because they were uh, very missionary and because there was a lot of growth happening often in tough circumstances I think we could use that learn from that to turn the church today uh, in western society not into a sort of embattled declining church but actually to say from a position of uh, being
0: on the margins we can nevertheless have this kind of positive outlook and grow. Let's kind of go into that a bit more nick and, and let's think particularly about how the early church engaged with this society which as you say was a society where christianity was not the norm and certainly did not hold a pri- privilege or position of power um, how, how did early christians kind of fit in or engage with the society where they found themselves
1: well, it's a good question. Um, early Christians were, in, in one sense, very socially awkward. Um, and I mean that not in the sense that some Christians can be socially awkward today. Uh, but what I mean is uh, they, early Christians didn't sacrifice. And in late antiquity, sacrifice is ubiquitous. It's part of life animal sacrifices yes of course but also uh, libations so you know wine or grain offerings and it's just part of life so if you're a civic functionary you would probably be offering some kind of cultic uh, sacrifices as part of that role now
0: and that the, wasn't if you were very religious that was simply something that you did rather like going shopping today
1: that was something that absolutely everybody did i mean you see this in paul's letters uh, to the corinthians you know the meat in the meat market has it been sacrificed to an idol that's just normal mm. The Christians didn't engage in those sacrifices uh, and that laid them uh, open to the charge of atheism. So it seems bizarre to us today that early Christians could have been accused of being atheists, uh, but they were because they weren't believing in uh, practicing the customs associated with the traditional gods of society. What that meant was that whenever something goes wrong, so you have uh, a, a natural disaster or war, famine, whatever it is, uh, society as a whole looks around and says, what have we been doing to displease the gods? And very quickly you identify the Christians and you say, oh, they haven't been sacrificing. So they're open to marginalisation, they're open to persecution. Um, if you take, for example, uh, the Emperor Julian uh, in the f- late 4th century, uh, he's known as Julian the Apostate. That's a name given to him by the Christians. who's was raised as a Christian but turned against Christianity when he became emperor. And uh, he uh, hated Christians and loved animal sacrifices and was promoting this throughout the empire. Uh, and one of the things he did was a, a common Christian defense was to say, we're not the only ones who don't sacrifice. Look, the Jews don't sacrifice either. And that was true since the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem in AD 70. The Jews hadn't sacrificed. So the Emperor Julian uh, decided that he was going to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem simply in order to take away this excuse from the Christians. Uh, now, he wasn't successful in that, but that shows you the extent to which Christians were isolated within uh, late, late antiquity, this society.
0: So if they were isolated, how else were they uh, treated or how else did they kind of fit in or, or not with with kind of the society of the day well we have examples of uh, christians being mocked
1: so uh, there's a, a piece of graffiti that was uncovered in rome i've seen it yeah. uh, you've seen this <laughs> yeah. yeah in in the flesh you've that's, seen, right, yeah, seen that's it, right yeah with um, a donkey mm-hmm. on a cross and uh, the inscription reads, "Alexamenos worships his god." Mm. So clearly, this is an early Christian who's being mocked uh, for uh, Christianity being, um, you know, ridiculous. Uh, we have accusations of cannibalism. Accusations of infanticide, uh, accusations of Christians using underhand methods. So they sort of they approach the, the weak willed or the, the, the um, gullible, uh, and then when someone intelligent comes along, they scarper, you know, that, that sort of thing. Some of those accusations I think are understandable, so if you have a, um, a, a group that meets and claims to have this meal where they eat the flesh and drink the blood of their founder, you can see how an accusation of cannibalism might arise. Um, infanticide's a little bit harder to understand, uh, some of this might just be um, a stock in trade for groups you don't like, but there's clearly a lot of reaction to Christians as a distinct and noticeable group within ancient
0: society. So you're painting a picture, Nick, of, of, of the early church throughout those first centuries, kind of both wanting to engage positively with society and not wanting to be marginalised, but at the same time engaging in quite a complex relationship with the powers that be mm-hmm. and being in in some sense mocked and, and, and socially isolated. But those weren't the only challenges, weren't they, they were facing? Uh, I, I know there were kind of more kind of chewy theological questions they were working through. Give us a sense about what was occupying them from that perspective.
1: Yes, this is interesting because here we see people reacting not simply to the social practices of Christians, um but to some of the things they actually believed. And uh, so we have for example, uh you know, philosophers engaging with Christian ideas and responding to them. Sometimes with mockery and derision, but uh, but actually, you know, beginning to understand Christian doctrines. So, for example, uh, they might say, well, why does, you know, the incarnation, why does God need to come down to earth? If he's God, surely he knows what's going on. Uh, And when Christians say, well, actually, he came down to save us, uh, the response might come, well, why does he need to uh, come down to earth to save you? Can't he just save you because, you know, he's an all-powerful God? Uh, And that's a valid and and important objection that Christians have continued to think about uh, for the last 2,000 years. Um, We have interesting interactions. For example, Porphyry, who's a a third-century philosopher, um, really engages closely with Christian reading of Scripture. And he says uh about the scriptures he says look at the old testament uh this is all immoral these stories that are here that can't possibly be a a virtuous text and uh, you christians need to uh you know be honest about that and recognize it and perhaps distance yourselves from it and so we see christians beginning to develop responses that will allegorize the old testament to make it an acceptable text um one other uh sort of ideological challenge to christianity is the fact that it's, it's a newcomer on the world stage. And in the ancient world, you had to have antiquity uh, to be respected, to have truth. You, know, you needed to show that there was heritage to the beliefs that you held.
0: So with these intellectual challenges going on, what were the things that kind of characterised the response from from those in the early church who engaged with these debates?
1: Well, what's really interesting and helpful is to look at uh, a group of writers. Uh, We don't have um, huge amounts of writing from them, but we know of a number of writers and we have a a number of texts uh, called the apologists, the second century apologists. Um, Their name comes from the the Greek word apologia, uh, which isn't about being sorry. (laughs) It's, um, It's about giving a defense. And that's where we get our modern word apologetics from. And uh, what these these uh, th- this group are, are doing uh, is beginning to uh, engage um, intellectually, also beginning to engage legally, because that word apologia has a formal meaning, which is the defence speech that's given in court. Uh, and you see this actually in the Book of Acts. So if you're reading Acts and various points, it will say Paul gave a defence. Sometimes that's in court, and he's formally giving his defence speech. Uh, sometimes it's in uh, a, a more general public context, and it has a a looser meaning you know he's he's defending but also beginning to develop a positive articulation of the faith that he holds and that's exactly what we find uh,
0: in these these second century apologists as well if you had to pick out i guess one of these kind of you might call heroes one of the kind of key figures for you from the early church who engage particularly on these apologetic questions who would be the key one that, that you'd want to pick out and and, and i guess why
1: one of the writers we have a, a number of texts from is a chap called Justin Martyr. Um, as I said, we do have a number of other texts from Melito of uh, Sardis. We have a, um, the letter to to Diognetus. Um, Justin Martyr is a is a great figure, partly because we have some of his writings, so we uh, are able to, to read and. And, and is learn that a problem?
0: That. I mean, are you are you is is the fact. One of the problems is that a lot of the writings have have not survived, and therefore the picture is patchy.
1: Yes, that's right. And so part of this we're picking up. So Eusebius, who writes the church history in the early 4th century, uh, talks about a number of apologists that he's aware of, and uh, he... Yeah, so we have some names there, which is great, but we then try to match the names perhaps to the fragments we have. Some of them we have nothing, some of them we have fragments, some of them we have whole texts, and Justin will be one of those. So tell us about him. Where, where, Where did he come from? So Justin, uh, he's he's in the second century, he um, originated, uh, I think, in in Palestine. Um, What's interesting about Justin is that he tells us the story of his conversion. In one of the texts, he opens and says, this is what happened. Uh, And he talks about how uh, he went from being uh, a stoic, to being a Pythagorean to becoming a Platonist and he became a convinced uh, Platonist and then he has this story of a, a, an encounter with an old man who's not named and uh, talks about how they had discussions about philosophy and truth and the soul and so forth and this old man introduced him to the Hebrew scriptures and the writings of the prophets and said these were inspired by the Holy Spirit and as a result of that interaction Justin became a Christian but he'd been a philosopher first and he sees. True philosophy continuing
0: into uh, the Christian faith. So, how did he go about integrating, therefore, his philosophical background with his new faith? That must have given him a particularly kind of powerful set of tools to engage the, the various intellectual debates that were going on.
1: Yes, absolutely, and I think one of the things we see in Justin uh, is that he begins to engage with some of these ideological, intellectual objections to Christianity in, in a really thought-through way. So he writes a couple of uh, apologies. Uh, those are titles we've given to them, uh, modern modern scholars have given to them. Um, but uh, his, his first apology opens with... Um, a formal uh, address to the emperor. So he's talking to uh, the emperor Antoninus Pius and uh, he's advocating for Christians. So he's saying, let Christians be uh, tried on the basis of the actual charges against them and not simply for being Christians. Okay, so if you're accusing them of cannibalism, then let's see some evidence and let's have a fair trial and so forth. But what he then goes on to do in in the bulk of the work is begin to articulate these kind of intellectual uh, defences of Christianity. Uh, and one of the really interesting and key ones is that he talks about the logos. So uh, it's a, a Greek word that means reason um, or word. Uh, we find it in John's gospel. So in the beginning was the logos. Uh, but we also find it In uh, Platonic thought, so the Logos is the intermediary power between uh, an unchangeable, immovable God and the the sort of multiple and changeable and decaying world. Uh, We also find it in Stoic thought, where the Logos is the sort of rational principle in the world. So the fact that that same word is used means that he can begin to take this language and speak into uh, a culture which is saturated in these philosophical ideas but speak into it from a Christian uh, point of view.
0: How else did he engage going beyond that kind of the philosophical, um, logos, what other approaches did he take to defending Christianity and kind of putting it out there as a, as a kind of reasonable faith?
1: So one thing I mentioned earlier was the, uh, the lack of antiquity. This is a big problem for Christians. Uh, this is a new faith. It's the, the, the new kid on the block and, uh, part of the the um, approach that Justin takes uh, is to tackle that head-on. And uh, he, re- first of all, rejects the idea that uh, what's old is true. Okay, just because it's got antiquity doesn't mean that it's truth. But he still accepts the idea that what's true is old. So if it's true, it will have antiquity. One of the um, ways he goes about Tackling that is to develop a kind of theft theory. It's not completely new to him. Others had had the idea. uh, But he basically says that these Greek philosophers who have discovered truth have discovered it because they stole it from the Egyptians. And if you want to push that further, you then then say the Egyptians stole it from the uh, Hebrews, from the perhaps directly from the Torah or or from the Hebrews uh, when they were in exile. or in slavery in, in Egypt. So that's one, one theory. Another one uh, is back to this idea of Logos, that actually if you have an idea of um, universal truth in the Logos, who is actually, we now know as Christians, Christ, and, and that's the fullest expression of Logos, it does actually enable you to speak about Logos or truth Wherever it is found through history, being partial um, and, and incomplete, but nevertheless still being truth, so it can give you a positive account of truth within
0: these other philosophical traditions. Justin uh, sounds like a remarkable man uh, who um, uh, who who could engage across his whole sphere of kind of intellectual uh, debates, and and as an example of of that wider example of of how the early church behaved I guess looking at it from today what 1700 years later um what can we learn from people like Justin's engagement um people like him in terms of how the church might live out in a changing culture today it's faith Mm. um uh, it's it's a great
1: question and I think um one thing we might look at Justin and say is actually here we have someone who is appealing uh, to the government and appealing to pagan society around him. And uh, that's a great thing. So, uh, Christians who are involved in politics uh, or in advocacy, uh, organisations like Christian Solidarity Worldwide, all of those are great things to be doing standing up and speaking through the
0: formal mechanisms that exist. Uh, that, that's, that's one thing. So, so, therefore, what Justin refused to retreat from the public sphere, but kind of moved towards, if you like, the public sphere square and move towards it instead with a kind of defence for what is fruitful and what is good about the, about the, about the uh, church's mission. Is that right? Absolutely. Yes, that's right. Okay. How else might their connections be made?
1: Well, one of the key things, uh, you know, as you've heard me speak about um, philosophical systems and speaking that language, uh, one thing we can learn, I think, is uh, to engage intellectually uh, in the language and thought systems of the day. And there's partly a question about who Justin's writing for. I mean, it would seem that there was some kind of address uh, to, to those outside, but it also seems that he's writing for a Christian audience. So in a sense, he's writing to equip Christians that when they encounter these uh, philosophical ideas or this language, they too can respond. So that's something that as a church we want to be doing, speaking publicly, but also training uh, one another, training uh, churches and
0: ordinary Christians to engage I- in those terms. And therefore, if you're saying that Justin was able to speak the language of the day, I don't want to put you on the spot, but, but what might Justin say today, therefore? What language might he use to, to articulate his faith if he were around uh, in the 21st century UK? Uh, that's a very good question. Um I...
1: Off the top of my head, I, I, I perhaps struggle to uh, put my finger on any one thing. I suppose we need to look around at what are the currents of thought, both in terms of popular culture, but also in terms of the, the intellectual uh, streams of thought. So in the ancient world, it's not the case that everyone was a Platonist or a Stoic, but those Thought systems had trickled down. Uh, and so, what is it today? Well, we've had the Enlightenment, and that's trickled down and still quite pervasive in terms of its influence. Um, we're now in a postmodern world. So, actually, engaging with what does postmodernism mean and what does it mean at the level of the ordinary person who perhaps doesn't even know the word postmodernism but actually is operating very much within
0: those kind of paradigms of thought. Yeah, it struck me uh, a reminder that kind of. Uh, Tim Keller uh, writes about understanding the language of the day, and he talks about the language of individual flourishing being an absolute kind of supreme goal. Um, that may not have been the case in the first centuries, but mm. but I wonder if Justin would have been saying, well, okay, let's look at what individual flourishing looked like. It may not look like autonomy, which is what we perhaps think it means today. It might look like something else. I mean, do you think he'd be engaging in those sorts of debates? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I guess... Um, how else, how might he be engaging with the kind of the, the postmodern truth debate? And I guess, you know, where is truth to be found? What, what, what might he have to speak mm. to that sort of culture?
1: I think I mean one of the helpful things about Justin so we might want not want to go um full blown for some of his arguments so that idea of the theft theory uh, might not you know carry the day today seems a little bit implausible but actually his idea of the logos this universal reason or universal truth that we can recognize in other Um, places yet while still maintaining a commitment to finding it supremely in Christ I think that's a really really helpful model so uh, it enables us in a non-defensive way to see truth elsewhere and to name it as such all truth is God's truth uh, and to affirm it um, but then perhaps to try and draw lines between that and Christian truth Um, and I think actually as much as Postmodernism is caricatured for uh, denying absolute truth. I think often people at an individual level are affirming some things as true. And so teasing those out and seeing where you can recognise those and then connect to the Christian
0: faith. And does that say, have something to say about the way in which Christianity might engage with people of other faiths?
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, um, again, Justin in particular would be saying uh, that this commitment to truth enables us to see people uh, as Christians before Christ has come in a sense within philosophical streams or whatever Um, but in terms of relating to other religions today uh, yes there there may be huge amounts of truth within them which may not be the whole truth uh, and may not mean that one wants to uh, affirm those religions as actually being authentic pathways to God yet nevertheless it opens up a door for dialogue and for respect and understanding which could then be a bridge for uh, someone coming to know Christ.
0: Justin comes across as a great example of the early church's kind of robust, positive, intellectually confident engagement and articulation of the Christian uh, faith in the public square. I- if we wanted to kind of read him a bit for ourselves or, or read something about it, wh- where would you suggest we start? Hmm. One thing to say about the
1: early Christian texts is that huge numbers of them are available for free online. So if you go to the Christian Classics Ethereal Library, ccel.org, you'll find them there in PDF. The Anti-Nicene Fathers, the Nicene and Post-Nicene Fathers just cover sort of the first four centuries or so. Uh, You'll find Justin in Volume 1 of the Anti-Nicene Fathers. uh, So that you could go and just read his first apology, his dialogue with Trifo. Um, the translations are Victorian translations they're not always the best but they are freely available so it's all there um, however that is an absolutely enormous uh, corpus of literature thousands and thousands of pages and it might be a little bit daunting you can get anthologies so for example uh, Alastair McGrath's uh, edited a, a Christian theology reader if you go in there the first uh, number of excerpts will be early church writers uh, or if you look for the volume a new eusebius again that collects a number of just short excerpts from early church works i think as well there are a number of books which are um, popular and accessible introductions to early uh, early christian thinkers so for example mike reeves has written a book called the breeze of the centuries go and find that it's a great uh, l- short book a little
0: read but introduces you to a number of key early christian thinkers Nick, you, you said earlier that you um, kind of fell in this in love with the early church from your first year of, of of reading theology and studying that some years ago. As you look back on your journey since then, what's the study of these rather extraordinary people from the early centuries of the Christian church remarkable in all sorts of ways? What's that done for you personally? What have you taken away from that? I guess, as a, as, a, as a minister and as a, as a, as a theologian yourself?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I'm um, hugely encouraged by write, uh, reading these early, early Christian writers. Uh, I think sometimes it's very um, affirming to find this continuity of the deposit of faith that they've, uh, they've handed this on and we're still here living and, and believing it today. Sometimes it challenges us because their perspective is very different from ours. Um, I'd love to just uh, read to you uh, a short uh, extract from, this is the uh, the letter to Diognetus. It's another second century text. We don't know who wrote it, um, but uh, this is another one of the, the apologists, effectively. Uh, and uh, it's just a, a beautifully expressed piece. So uh, let me just read this. Thank you. For Christians are no different from other people in terms of their country, language or customs. Nowhere do they inhabit cities of their own, use a strange dialect, or live life out of the ordinary. They haven't discovered this teaching of theirs through reflection or through the thought of meddlesome people, nor do they set forth any human doctrines, as do some. They inhabit both Greek and barbarian cities according to the lot assigned to each, and they show forth the character of their own citizenship in a marvellous and admittedly paradoxical way by following local customs in what they wear and what they eat and in the rest of their lives." They live in their respective countries, but only as resident aliens. They participate in all things as citizens, and they endure all things as foreigners. Every foreign territory is a homeland for them, every homeland foreign territory. They marry like everyone else and have children, but they do not expose or abandon them once they're born. They share their meals, but not their sexual partners. They're found in the flesh, but don't live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but participate in the life of heaven. They're obedient to the laws that have been made, and by their own lives they supersede the laws. They love everyone and are persecuted by all. They're not understood and they're condemned. They're put to death and made alive. They're impoverished and make many rich. They lack all things and abound in everything. And that's just a, a beautifully expressed, very poetic way of speaking of uh, the, the way in which Christians are uh, deeply embedded in and committed to the societies in which they live. And yet at the same time, answerable to a higher power. Uh, and I think that for me has been a, a huge um, encouragement and challenge uh, as I seek to do the same um, 1800 years later.
0: Nick, you've given us a wonderful window into a world which seems so different, but clearly has much to say to us today. Uh, Nick, thank you for coming on Talking Theology. Thank you. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Kran Hall, Durham. Cranmer Hall is a theological college within St John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmerhall.com.